2 Samuel 22. We have come to the end of David's reign here in 2 Samuel, and these last few chapters, they serve like uh, uh, appendices. You know, uh, you ever get to a book and it's like Appendix A, Appendix B. They kind of they work like that because they kind of, it's not that it's not chronological, it just, it, it kind of stops following a narrative and it just highlights a few things that occurred during those final years of David's reign. Uh, and one of those things that occurred is David published a song, um, Psalm tw- uh, this Second uh, Samuel 22. Now, uh, this psalm, song, you can actually find it uh, almost verbatim in Psalm 18. It's the same song, uh, but with a few minor changes. Um, and because of that, uh, most believe that David, uh, because it tells us here he wrote this song when he was a younger man, but most believe that this isn't just kind of a revisitation or like an appendix, oh, David wrote this song when he was a young man, uh, when Saul died and he first took the, the, the throne. But most believe that David he kind of revisited this song that he wrote at the end of his reign as he's kind of looking back with gratitude over what God had done for him, not just through uh, delivering it from Saul, but through all the other troubles he found himself in throughout his entire life. And so the reason there's, and I I agree, the reason there's some differences in the two songs, very minor, is that because he made some minor changes to the song and then republished it uh, for the people of Israel to sing. Um, so we're going to study that tonight. So Psalm, or 2 Samuel 22, verse 1. It says, And David spoke unto the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord had delivered him out of the hand of all his enemies and out of the hand of Saul. So again, this is a song that was originally written way back. We're talking, you know, um, 40 years prior to the events that we're covering here and what we've been covering lately. Uh, and, and I think that's fascinating to me that, you know, David revisits this old song, makes a few changes to it, and then releases it again uh, to the nation of Israel. Uh, because maybe, you know, you've come to church and, 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 and maybe even tonight, and you wondered, why do we sing new songs? You know, or why do we change sometimes, maybe take an old song and change the music or change a few of the words? Why, why do we do that to songs? I remember there was a conversation I had many, many years ago with uh, an individual uh, about this. And they said, you know, why, why, why are we doing Amazing Grace differently? You know, what was wrong with Amazing Grace we did before? And, and I explained, I said, you know, the Amazing Grace you're used to is not the way it was originally written. They kind of looked at me and I said, and I read, a, I read a, a section from 1876 where an individual was complaining about how they changed Amazing Grace. I said, Amazing Grace has gone through nine or ten iterations. The one that you're used to hearing is like number seven. And I said, you know, I said, if the only, if the songs we sing only represent what God did for us in the past, then it begs the question, am I still trusting God for things now? Is God still working in my life now? Am I still growing closer to my Savior and, you know, I asked the individual, I said, why is Amazing Grace so important to you? And they did. They referenced back to something, you know, very early in their, their Christian walk with the Lord. And it was very special and clearly very powerful. And I said, that's wonderful. I said, but if that's all God ever did in your life and he's not doing anything now and you don't have any new songs to sing, I said, that's not healthy. I said, you should have new songs to sing. This is why the Bible commands us to sing new songs to the Lord. And so even though this is very similar to David's old song, it's a new song. Because God was indeed still working in David's life. David was still changing. David was still growing in his relationship with his Savior. And so he republishes this song with some changes to it that reflect the new work that God's been doing in his life. So, verse 2, we get to the song. It starts here. And he said, that's David, when he wrote the song, he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. The God of my rock, David was uh, an 80s guy, you know, the rock days, you know. The God of my rock, in him will I trust. I know some of you older than me going, son, we invented rock before the 80s, but. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my high tower and my refuge, my savior. You saved me from violence. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from mine enemies. 
So David, he just starts off the song by summarizing God's amazing, faithful character. He says in in verse 2, God is my hiding place. The Lord is my rock. My my very first time I was in Israel, I texted Beverly and sent her a bunch of pictures because rocks were everywhere. I said, look at all the rocks. You know, I think that was, I pointed out to you. I said, wait till we get on the bus. You're going to see all the rocks. I remember we were sitting there and she's like, Will, there's a lot of rocks. I said, I told you. Now, in our culture, we usually think of stability when we think of someone being a rock, right? We think, oh man, that guy's a rock, or that gal's a rock, right? You know, we usually think of that. But this word doesn't refer to that. This word, it's a reference to the the crags and the cliffs that would provide hiding places in the rocky hills that are all throughout Israel, the safe places, the places that David often hid from Saul. And so he says, Lord, you're my, you're my hiding place is what he's saying. You're my, my, the place I can get away from my enemies. And so then he says, well, the Lord is also his fortress. The word here describes a, a defensive position, uh, you know, usually on a, uh, like at the top of a natural land formation. So like a, a stronghold or a fort that's on top of a hill uh, that is difficult to get to. So in the same way, you're my, I can run to you. This is a safe hiding place. You're my fortress. You're... He says, and my deliverer. Again, the same concept. It means, deliverer means to save another, uh, to be safe from danger. Uh, normally with a focus on physical dangers or the troubles you might experience uh, in life. God was the rock that David hid behind so Saul couldn't find him. He was the stronghold on the high hill that kept David safe, you know, inaccessible to Saul's attacks. And he was the one who rescued David from the troubles that came his way on earth. And so, David says, I trusted in him. Verse 3, the God of my rock in him will I trust. I love this because the way it actually literally reads in the Hebrew is my rock God, you know? My rock God. You know, my, my place of safety. And so in him, that's where I'm going to trust. The word trust here is different than just believing on or relying on. It literally means to seek or take refuge in something. Something. You know, the Lord was his hiding place, but the Lord was also his safe place, his place of safety. David could have, in many of these circumstances, and in fact, in a few of those circumstances, had opportunities to take matters into his own hands, right? To provide safety and security for himself. But instead of doing that, he sought safety from danger by trusting the true rock, the Lord. Now, God does not promise that all of us will escape our enemies like David did. It's why many Christians throughout history have been persecuted or martyred. He doesn't promise that. But God is the place all of us should seek safety from our enemies. That's the place we should run to when we're looking for safety. Because if we fight the spiritual forces of darkness or fight the people who seek our harm in our own strength and our own way, it will always result in either failure or dishonoring the Lord. Those are always the only two possible outcomes. If you escape, you'll probably end up dishonoring the Lord or it will fail. And so, you know, I ask you before we get too deep into this song, you know, this evening, you know, who do you turn to when you need to find safety from danger? Who do you turn to, yourself, or do you turn to the, like David said, my rock God, you know? Well, not only was God David's hiding place and his place of safety, but God, David goes on to say, was everything I needed him to be when I was in trouble. He says, he is my shield. It's a defensive, you know, uh, uh, defensive uh, item. He is the horn of my salvation. This refers to the horns that are on an animal. They were used for offensive weapons that God gave to them. God's my defense. God's my offense. He's my high tower. You know, the high tower was a a place that you could go up and, and to get, you know, to get to you, they'd have to come through this very tiny corridor that wound around the tower and, you know, where it's easy pickings if you were up top. He's my high tower. And my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. And here, David begins to start to hint at some of the trouble he got into. It was violence. It was from physical harm. He was in physical danger. So God was David's defense, his offense, his retreat point, and his rescuer when there was nowhere else to run from those who wanted to harm him. And because of that, 
because that's how he viewed the Lord. David had a clear plan when he was in trouble. He had a solitary path that he would seek, you know, when he would look for rescue from these types of troubles. Verse 4, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and so shall I be saved from my enemies. Because God was all those things that David mentions in verses 2 and 3, his, his hiding place, his place of safety, everything David needed him to be, you know, whether it was a retreat point, offense, defense, God was all those things. David declares, well, he's the one, therefore, I'm going to go to. He's the one who's always worthy of praise, and he's the one I'm going to turn to when I'm in trouble. Now, if you don't believe that God is the rock and the, place of hi- the, the hiding place, the place of safety, or your offense or defense, your place of retreat, you know, your, your rescuer from violence, if you don't believe that, if you don't believe he's the one who's always worthy of praise, well, then you're going to struggle when trouble comes into your life. You're going to struggle. And you're very likely going to make a poor decision in how you respond to that trouble. You're not likely to call upon the Lord. Now, what does it mean to call upon the Lord? Help God. <laughs> well, surely that's involved. But the phrase, I will call, it actually means to summon someone else into your presence. You know? You know, my, my, my dad would summon us into his presence. That was never a good thing. You know? You know? Your father wants to speak to you. That was never a good thing. So the idea here certainly is that, you know, we don't command the Lord, but not like that. But the idea is, it's, it's when you and I say, Lord, I want you involved in my decision-making regarding this trouble I'm in. I want you involved in that process. I am making a decision right now to do things your way. That's the I will. If you ever want to have a fun Bible study, underline all the I wills in the Bible, you know, because you'll see some interesting decisions that people made as it concerned their lives. Some not so good because they willed to do something that the Lord said not to do, like Satan, I will ascend to the courts of the Most High, you know. I will be like the Most High God, right? I mean, that's not a good I will. But then we see other I wills like this here, I will. There's a, it's an act of the will, the decision that's being made here. And so you're saying, Lord, I want you to be involved. I'm, I'm inviting you into my presence because I've got, I've got to figure out what to do in the midst of this trouble. And I'm making a decision. I want to do things your way. I want you to be the one who fights this battle instead of doing so on my own because I know that's the only way I'll be saved from my enemies. I know that's the only way I'll be rescued. And to be honest, Lord, that's the only kind of rescue I want. And again, I ask you another question. Do you do that? You know, do you call upon the Lord? Do you invite God into your decision-making process when trouble comes? Do you invite the Lord to be your offense or your defense or your retreat point when someone attacks you? Well, we have the privilege of knowing David's story because we've been studying it for how many months, you know? So when we read this song, we look back and we go, oh yeah, remember how God did this and this and this for David. But Israel didn't have the internet and, and they didn't have, you know, cell phones and text each other and things like that. And, you know, so there are probably many people in Israel who didn't know all the details of David's story when he first, you know, published this song. And so when we get to verse 5, David kind of fleshes out this summary of of, of his experience with the Lord in verses 1 through 4 by explaining, first off, what kind of trouble he was in and then how he handled it. So verse 5 through 7, we're going to see the kind of trouble that hit David and how he handled it. He says in verse 5, when the waves of death compassed me, the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. The sorrows of hell compassed me about. The snares of death prevented me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God, and he did hear my voice out of his temple, and my cry did enter into his ears. So what kind of trouble was David in? Well, first off, he says he was surrounded by enemies with no foreseeable way of escape. He says, when the waves of death compassed me, um, waves here refers to the breaker waves. These are the types of waves that uh, they are difficult and dangerous to swim in, okay? These are not the type of waves that you're having fun out at the beach or whatever. These are the nasty waves. He says, when the breaker waves of death good, nice picture there. When the breaker waves of death surrounded me or was all around me, he explains that in addition to that, 
When I was already going through that, he says, the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. Now, the floods here refer to different waters. They refer to the flash floods that occur in that part of the world in the, in the wadis. And basically, there you have these massive mountains, and within them, if you're driving down through the Jordan Valley, you just see them. Every, you know, you, you drive, and you got this mountain, and then all of a sudden, you got this, like, little skinny valley, you know? And then you do it again, and then you see another one. They're all over there. And, and normally, you can walk down in there, and, and it's no big deal because it's generally arid over there. But when it comes in, the rains come in, and they get into those wadis, they just, they basically generate like a flood. It's incredibly dangerous to be caught in one of those. So, so David's like, I'm out here swimming in these breaker waves that are dangerous, just trying to keep my head above water, and all of a sudden, a flood of wicked men comes in unexpectedly into my life. You know, I have never been surrounded by the breaker waves of death. That sounds rough, doesn't it? I mean, maybe you've faced that. Some of you tonight have probably faced death, you know, where you thought, I don't know if I'm going to make it. You know, whether it was a, a physical health issue or, you know, a dangerous situation, maybe you have faced those things. I, I don't think I have. But even if you have, I think few of us, if any of us, have at the same time we were going through that experienced the awful terror of ungodly men coming in like a flood to wipe us out. Can you imagine what it was like for David? I mean, he's, you know, he's, he's away from home. He's a young man, you know, and he's there in the, in the, you know, in the throne room, and he's playing music for Saul, the demon-possessed guy. You know, he's not walking with the Lord. And all of a sudden, the king of Israel starts chucking spears at you. Can you imagine what that was like? You're just trying to stay afloat, man. And then all of a sudden, wham. Can you imagine what it was like for David to have people knocking at your door knowing they've come to kill you? And your wife's trying to keep him from coming in, saying, David's sick, he can't come to the door right now. Can you imagine what it was like to have an army of the most elite soldiers in your nation outnumbering you and your little band of ragtag guys six to one, and they've cornered you in the woods with no way out? David experienced each of those things and more to the point where he now explains in verse 6 that he felt like the grave was dragging him into the dirt. He says, the sorrows of hell, that's a bad translation. The word sorrows there means the cords, the ropes, the nooses. And, and the word here for hell is the, the word sheol, which was the Jewish word for both the grave and the afterlife. He says, I felt like the afterlife had ropes all around me and was dragging me down. You know, that the grave and death itself had ropes tied to me and was dragging me into the tomb. It had surrounded me about. The snares of death, he says, prevented me. That's an old King James word, old Elizabethan English word that means something has come at you and confronted you face to face. Because this was not a sneak attack. This was not something where I, I just kind of found myself surrounded. These were people who came right at my face. And of course, in this case, he's you know, personifying death in that way. The grave, the afterlife. You know, it's one thing to be scared of what might happen to you in a frightening situation. But it's another thing to see it standing in front of you, coming for you. It's another thing to see yourself surrounded by it. And you know, whether you are in that situation right now in your life or you just feel like the enemy's hemming you in, that could be incredibly distressing. And so it was into those distressing situations that David invited the Lord into his decision-making. Verse 7, in my distress, in this situation, he says, I cried unto the, I called, uh, I called upon the Lord. And I cried to my God. The word cried is the same called upon. I, I called upon out to my God. And he heard me. He heard my, he did hear my voice out of his temple, and my cry did enter into his ears. Now, God is certainly, David's not saying that God's a genie that we can summon into our presence whenever we demand. That's not his point, you know. I summon you, Lord, into my situation. But that's not what he's saying. But 
Even though God's not a genie like that, neither is our Lord aloof. Neither is He too far off to hear our cries. He may be in His holy temple in heaven, high and lifted up, surrounded by worshiping saints and angels. But when we invite God into our troubles, it reaches His ears and He responds. Aren't you glad the Lord loves you that much? That you never have to wonder if your prayers don't reach His ears. Aren't you glad that you can know that when you pray that it it finds a listening ear, the most important listening ear that's out there? How did God respond to David's cries? He's already told us, man, he's my rock God. He's, he's my offense, my defense. But now he's going to get into some details. He's going to use some incredibly poetic language here. But he's going to get into some details of how the Lord responded. He says in verses 8 through 9, he shows God's uh, first his response in heaven. He says, then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of heaven moved and shook because he was wroth. There went up a smoke out of his nostrils and fire out of his mouth devoured coals were kindled by it. That word wrath there, it means God was angry to the point of taking action. You know, it's one thing to be upset about something, and it's another thing to say, I'm going to do something about it. And so when David's cries came into the ears of his heavenly father, the Lord was angry enough that he was going to do something about it. Now, Again, we don't know if David's using poetic language to describe God's angry response to his prayers or if this actually happened in heaven, if like the earth shook and, 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 you know, heaven shook. I I don't know which one it is because you can't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. Well, whether it did or didn't, David's point is that God was not happy about the wrongs being done to David and God got up from his throne to do something about it. And so in verses 10 through 13, David now describes the Father's movement from heaven to earth to move from a place of not doing something to a place of action. Verse 10, he bowed the heavens also and came down, and darkness was under his feet. And he rode upon a cherub and did fly, and he was seen upon the wings of the wind. And he made darkness pavilions round about him, dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. And through the brightness before him were coals of fire kindled. I love verse 10 where it says he, he bowed, which means he stretched or spread out the heavens. You know, we're going to see this, lit- well, I don't know if we'll see it, but the earth is going to literally see, well, we won't see it. The earth will see it, though, in the beginning of the great tribulation, because I just don't know if we'll see it from heaven's side. But they're going to actually see God roll back the the sky like a scroll, and they're going to be able to see into heaven when they see that sixth seal judgment come upon them. God's going to do that. He's He's going to intervene in such a way where all the laws of nature go out the window. And so what David is saying, when God moved on my behalf, that's what he did. He intervened in such a way where all the laws of nature went out the window that he superseded those laws, bending their boundaries to make room for himself. Isn't that a cool thought? Because when we often evaluate our troubles or our problems, how do we evaluate them? Well, within the boundaries of the laws of nature, right? What can I do and what can't I do? What can happen and what can't happen? I remember, I don't even remember remember the context of the conversation, but this is right before me and Bev were getting married, you know, and and we were talking about just, you know, what are we going to do? You know, we don't have any money, you know? We literally had no money. We we, we went on our honeymoon. Someone had had, um, donated to us as a wedding gift the use of their condo on the beach. We went out there literally with no money. We opened the cards because that's how we were going to have a honeymoon, you know, how we're going to eat. We opened the cards, you know, going out there. But I, I remember as we're coming home, the car we had had all sorts of problems. And, uh, and, and I remember I, said, I told Bev, I said, what's, what's God going to do? Give us a car? And on our wedding, someone walked, literally walked up to us and they said, hey, Will, we, we love you guys and, and we want to give you not just a car, but a 1983 Buick Riviera convertible. Right. Yeah. The Lord's, the, Lord's, the Lord's like, yeah, I, I can give you a car, Will. 
But that was not on the radar at all. There was no way I could see that happening. There was no way in the way that the laws of nature work and life works that you could walk into this and go, well, you know, we're just trusting God that somebody's going to walk up to us and give us a car. When God intervenes, all of that goes out the window. He supersedes all of those things. And he bends the boundaries of what's possible because, so he can make room for himself. He bowed the heavens. He stretched them out and he came down. And then it mentions that darkness, David says, was under his feet. It means a very thick cloud was under his feet. It mentions him riding upon an angel and flying. And then he was seen upon the wings of the wind, you know, the, the wind currents and everything like that. He made the, the darkness, so now the, the clouds, the, the, the very thick cloud that was under his feet, he made them like a tent round about him. Uh, there were dark waters and thick clouds in the sky, so it, it kind of became storm clouds. And then through the brightness of those dark storm clouds before him, it mentions that it looked like there were coals of kindled fire. Pretty powerful picture here. Now, God doesn't, you know, ride on the back of angels, you know. Come on, Michael, you know, Gabriel, let's go, you know. God doesn't fly on the back of angels, you know. Uh, and he certainly was not seen by any Israelis flying in the sky as David's fleeing from Saul. I'm pretty sure the Scriptures would have mentioned that. So some of this clearly is poetic language here. But the thick clouds are something we have seen before when God's presence was involved. Look at Exodus 19 with me. I think David's borrowing from this and, you know, explaining it with how he imagines the Lord, you know, intervening on his behalf. Exodus 19. <clears throat> and we can kind of see where David's, you know, painting this picture because of when God's presence came on Mount Sinai, we, we see something similar to this. It's not poetic language here, but it is extremely similar. Exodus 19, verse 16, this is as the Lord has told Israel, to, he's led them, Moses has led them to Mount Sinai, and now his presence has come down uh, on the mountain. And so it describes it, verse 16 of Exodus 19. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount. And the voice of the trumpet, exceeding loud. When God was speaking, it was like, you know, the sound of a trumpet. So that all the people that were in the camp, they shook and trembled. I would too. And, and Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the nether part of the mount. And Mount Sinai was all together on a smoke. Like it looked like it was on fire. Because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And the smoke thereof ascended like the smoke of a furnace, which is billowing up these dark uh, clouds, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. That's, that's what Israel saw, you know, when they came to Mount Sinai, the presence of the Lord, the physical presence of the Lord, the, uh, the glory of the Lord on the top of Mount Sinai. So, I mean, very similar to David here. The, the presence of God in these stormy, dark clouds is the same thing that David's describing here, albeit in poetic language. You know, when we see the Lord's presence on Mount Sinai, it's not as a man walking on the mountaintop, you know. Uh, hey, everybody. You know, that, that's not what they saw. Uh, but God's presence was shrouded in those clouds as if he's flying on the wings of the wind, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it, his feet weren't on the mountain. It was just hovering there above the, the, uh, the mountain as if he's doing that. The stormy clouds are described as glowing red uh, like a furnace, as if the brightness of God's presence within was kindling coals. We see Ezekiel described when he had a vision of God, the, the throne of God, uh, the same exact way. So, so David, I think, is, is seeing these things and then probably adding some poetic language because that's what songwriters do. So he sees God moving from heaven to earth, or he, he, he's, he's picturing how God was moving from his throne and now going to intervene on earth. And now in verse 14, we see what God did, you know, as he's moved his attention to the earth. Verse 14, the Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered his voice, and he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and discomfited them. 
Um, this word thunder here, the, there's only one other time it's used in the Old Testament. It's when God actually intervened for King Saul, when King Saul was fighting against the Philistines. In 1 Samuel 7, 10, it mentions that the Lord thundered in the camp of the Philistines. Again, that was a literal event. That intervention uh, referred to actual thunder that uh, frightened the, the, the Philistines, and they were darting in every direction, sometimes confused and fighting each other, and then Israel fell upon them. Um, but the Scripture never mentions a time that God thundered upon Saul to rescue David. So again, David is using this word poetically to describe God's powerful intervention, that the Lord spoke into his situation and altered the course of events. He says that he sent out arrows and scattered them. He lightning and discomfited, drove them off. Now again, when Saul was chasing David, God, we have no record of God sending angels from the, uh, arrows from the sky or lightning to chase off Saul. But we do know at one time when Saul was chasing David that what happened? He got news that the Philistines had invaded. And so in a sense, that's how God drove Saul away. And, and David could escape out of those woods when he was cornered with nowhere to go. So again, David is using poetic language to show that the natural limitations of our world aren't limiting to the Lord. I remember, you've probably heard me tell this story before, but we had such a problem with mold in our house, and you know, I was so upset because I had called our insurance, our home insurance company, and they're like, yeah, well, you've got to reach the, and the, this amount before you know, our benefits kick in, and it was like 12 or 13 grand or something like that. I didn't have 12 or 13 grand, and I'm like, this mold was bad. One of the guys who came and looked at me, he said, I'd never seen it this bad. <clears throat> and, um, and so I was so upset. I mean, I was praying, but it was not prayers of faith. It was doing it out of obedience. And, uh, and even Bev was like, well, we got to trust the Lord. We got to trust the Lord. And I'm like, what am I, what's God going to do? Just throw $12,000 in our lap? <clears throat> Worked with the car. I figured I'd say it again. <laughs> it's like reverse psychology faith, you know? No, that's not it at all. I had no faith at all. <laughs> But we were praying in obedience to the Lord, and, and obviously one of us was trusting God a little bit better than I was. But I called the next day just to clarify a few things, because I wanted to know exactly where, where we stood. And, you know, the adjuster on the other side is like, yeah, well, I'm reading your policies, and we just take care of it all. The Lord's like, I don't have to give you twelve or $13,000. I can just wipe out your responsibility. I can change a contract. I said, well, my contract here, says here I need to do this and this. She goes, well, on my side, it doesn't say any of that. Again, the Lord can, you know, he may not send arrows from the sky, but he is not bound by the natural limitations of our world. He could send arrows from the sky if he wants. He could send lightning if he wants. Or he can send news, the Philistines have invaded, you got to go. Or he could tell the insurance adjuster, he can blank out her screen or make it all zeros. The idea is that God can rescue us even when the grave is dragging us down under. He still can. So first off, God intervened on David's behalf. Second off, God made a way where there was no way. Verse 16, and the channels of the sea appeared. The foundations of the world were discovered at the rebuking of the Lord at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. Now, the channels of the sea are the very deep places of the sea. I mean, the, you know, places we probably can't even get to just yet or at least can't you know, fully explore. He says those were, the word discovered means uncovered or removed. You know, the, the mental image here is, you know, David's being dragged down into, you know, the grave. And, and the Lord is like grabs hold of like, you know, the, you know the, the, the foundations of the earth. And he just, and David's like, I'm already under. And the Lord's like, nope, I can take the grass off, off the grave. I can take the casket out and I can still pull you out. It's not too late for me. I'm the one who makes a way where there is no way. The channels of the sea, they were uncovered by him. He took the lids off of them. It says the foundations of the world were discovered. You know, he took the lids off those. It says at the rebuking of the Lord. The word rebuke is when you speak words that show what someone else has done was wrong. No, it's not David's time and what you're doing to him is wrong. I'm not okay with this. Not okay with this. Now, 
people in that region of the world back then, uh, almost every Middle Eastern society back then, believed that the afterlife was located in the heart of the earth, hidden beneath what your eyes, my, your eyes and my eyes can see. And many Israelis thought similarly. Um, there is debate in the church today about whether Old Testament believers went immediately into God's presence when they died, uh, or, or if they needed to wait in some type of holding place. Like when Jesus said, this day you'll be with me in paradise, that that wasn't a reference to heaven, but it was a reference to some holding place until Jesus died uh, for their sins. I do not intend tonight to delve into what the Bible says about that debate, but it is important to note that it is possible that David believed, like many Jews of his day, that the righteous dead went to this holding place called Sheol, the grave, or, you know, the underworld. Uh, there is, it is possible David believed that. It's also possible, again, that David's just using uh, poetic language to make a point of how God can make a way when there, it looks like there's no way. Um, either way, <laughs> I need to point out, though, that this song that David writes is not intended to give us a teaching on the afterlife or its, its location for Old Testament believers. So, if you want to do a study on that topic, please do so, but please don't look for your proof texts in the poetry sections of Scripture. That's not wise research, okay? The truth that David is trying to convey, again, is that all natural boundaries to men and all natural law is laid bare before Almighty God, right? Nothing bars his involvement. And so, even though David was being dragged to the grave with no seeming way of escape, he says God intervened to do the impossible. God intervened on David's behalf. He made a way where there was no way. And it, it, David says, now he snatched me from death's grip. Verse 17, he sent from above, he took me, and he drew me out of many waters. Now, this word sent from above, it, it's, it's, uh, they have what's called a reflexive verb type in Hebrew, which means you're the one doing the action that's being described. And that's what's used here. So it's not that he sent someone else to rescue David, but he himself sent out from heaven. He himself stretched out his hand to David, and it says took him. It means he snatched him. He laid hold of him. He seized him. And it says he drew me, delivered, uh, I lost my spot, drew me out of many waters. That's how much God loved David, and that's how much God loves you. He takes an active role in your life and your troubles. He doesn't just send minions off to help you. And those many waters, well, those were those breaker waves of death. Those were those wadi floods of wicked men that came in against David and made it seem like there was no way out of this. I love this because David paints this amazing picture of God's hand reaching down from the height of heaven to the deepest, most restricted place on earth to snatch David from the tentacles of death that are dragging him into oblivion. Someone who has artistic skills should draw that because that's an amazing mental picture. It's pretty cool. Not only did God snatch David from death's grip, but God was bigger than all of David's deficiencies. Look at 18 and 19. He delivered me from my strong, my mighty, my powerful enemy, and from them that hated me, for they were too strong. A different word, they had too high of a status for me. They prevented me. They came at me right to my face, he says, in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my stay. Saul and those who allied with him had more power, more influence, and more resources than David. But David had the Lord. David had the Lord. And that puts you in the superior position. <laughs> Isn't it good to know you have the Lord too? When David had nothing left to stop them, the Lord was his stay, his supply. You know, they had this huge supply. Well, the Lord was his supply. It refers to goods that are needed for basic life. I think that's important because it doesn't say that he was David's riches or wealth, you know, that he just said, David, I'm going to take your problem and I'm going to make it like it never existed. I'm going to put you up in this great spot and your life's just going to be easy and nice now. No. 
How many times do we see Saul come after David, and David gets out, and he's just safe, but he's still not home. So David did not die. He did not go under. In contrast, the Lord blessed David. And then in the next few verses, David explains why. Verse 20, he brought me forth into a large place. It means a broad, roomy, or spacious location. It's the exact opposite of being surrounded by enemies or wrapped in cords that are dragging you down. No one was surrounding me. No one was dragging me down into the grave. David wasn't home again. God didn't restore things to the way they were before his trouble started with Saul, but David was safe. He had what he needed. Now, why did God do that for David when none of us deserve any help from God? Well, David gives us four reasons why God helped him. He says, number one, he brought me forth into a large place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. The word delighted, it means to have a fondness or an affection for someone. God helped David because he liked David. He loved David. David was important to him. He was special to him. And that's always the same reason that God helps you and me, because he loves us. He likes us. We're special to him. Now, some would conclude, well, then that must mean if God doesn't intervene in my trouble, that's proof he doesn't like me, or he doesn't love me, or he's not fond of me. But that's not a logical way to look at what David says here. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say God intervened for David because he owed David love that he had to always prove to David he loved him. That's not what David says. He says the Lord intervened because his love for David was an established fact. He loved David, period. No other logical deductions need be made because we'll usually come up with the wrong ones. He loved David. God doesn't owe me help. He doesn't owe me love, but he does love you and me. And so that means if he doesn't intervene when I cry out to him, he still loves me, but there's a good reason he's letting happen to me what is happening. And so when that happens, if you cry out and he doesn't intervene or help you or remove that situation, that's not proof he doesn't love you. He proved he loved you on the cross, and he need do nothing else to substantiate that proof. You just need to know that he does. And what is cool then is rather than when I cry out to God and I say, God, can you please do this for me? And God doesn't do what I'm praying for. Then I can go, well, God, I know you love me, so there must be a good reason for this. There must be some reason you haven't, you know, gotten me out of this mess. And so, because I know you love me. So, Lord, I'm going to rest in that. I think one of my favorite stories to read about uh, martyrs of the faith is Polycarp. You read, you read about him, he was the pastor of the church in Smyrna, and he was constantly on the run from the Roman authorities. And, and every time he sees miraculous ways, he gets out of it. And then he was staying with some Christians because and, and, the soldiers were looking for him. He's up on the roof, and, and he's praying. And the Lord said, you know, he felt like the Lord said to him, he said, Polycarp, you're not going to get away this time. And so rather than go, well, God, you don't love me anymore, you don't like me anymore, he started to pray about what to do. And so when the soldiers came for him, and, you know, they're, oh, Polycarp's not here, da, 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 you know, he says, you know, invite him in for dinner. Invite him in for dinner. And he went with them peacefully. Eventually he was burned um, by the Roman authorities, alive. But the testimony of how he handled all these things, many other people came to Christ through that. And so again, you know, he didn't come to that situation and go, what, what did I do? Why don't you like me anymore? Why are you letting this happen? Instead, he began to pray and said, well, then, Lord, how do you want me to handle this? Because I know you love me. So clearly, you want to do something else. You have a different plan here this time that, that allows me to be in danger still. So what do you want me to do so I can be a part of that plan? Because I know you love me. So David says he rescued him because God loved him. Secondly, he rescued him because David chose to not fight evil with evil. Verse 21, the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, as he recompensed me, for I kept the ways of the Lord, and I have not wickedly departed from my God. 
That word righteousness there doesn't mean that David thought he was righteous in his own merit. He didn't believe he was a good person or better than others. The word there, righteousness, it just means my innocence, my blamelessness and how I handled the situation. He says, you know, when evil was done to me, I made a choice to not depart from the ways of the Lord, to wickedly depart from my God, but I kept the ways of the Lord. The word kept there means to be careful about doing some, something. He said, I, I, I gave a lot of thought and energy to make sure I was doing things God's way, even though others weren't. And so while God doesn't owe us anything, the Bible does say that he rewards us when we trust him. In Hebrews 11.6, it tells us that. It says, you know, it, uh, well, let me read it to you. I'm going to mess it up because there's a, a first part to it. But without faith, it's impossible to please him. And this is the part I wanted to share. For he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And so David believed that. I believe if I diligently seek the Lord, if I'm careful about how I handle this, that God will honor that. And David says, God did. And so David says, how did I handle it? Well, I didn't depart from following him. You know, I I stayed on the straight and narrow. I, I continued to follow my God even when others had left that path, that way, that road. David did not join in his enemy's guilt by trusting himself. He remained innocent of that by refusing to leave the right path to fight evil with evil. Now, how are you going to do that? (laughs) Well, the same way David did, which is reason number three. He gave high value to what God's Word says to do. The third reason that God helped David is because David looked to God's Word for answers. Look at verse 23. For all his judgments were before me, and as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. This word judgment and statutes, there are six words in the book of Deuteronomy that are used to describe God's word. Kind of divides God's word into six kind of categories. These two, judgments and statutes, describe judgments, God's heart. They reveal God's heart. When we are reading God's judgments in Scripture, they reveal his heart toward things. His statutes reveal his standards. God has standards. God has thoughts about how life should be done. His heart. And he has standards, his boundaries. And so David says, how did I do this? How did I not repay evil for evil or fight evil with evil? How did I stay on the straight and narrow? He goes, well, I kept God's heart and God's standards in front of me from his word. He says, before me, it means it's toward my front side. You know, God's heart and God's standards were in the forefront of David's mind. They weren't on the back burner. They were on the forefront of David's mind when he made decisions on how to respond to the evil that was done to him. He says, that's one of the reasons God helped me. He says, because God loved me, because I didn't fight evil with evil, because I looked to God's word for answers, and lastly, because I lived them out. Verse 24. I was also upright before him and have kept myself from mine iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness. My righteousness means his innocence, and cleanness means his moral purity. He stayed on the right path in his eyesight. What David is explaining here is he's going, oh, I was tempted to sin. <laughs> I went through everything everybody else does. I was tempted to sin. But it says that he paid close attention to not give in to those temptations. He wrestled those disobedient thoughts into captivity instead of letting them bang around in his head until he made a bad decision. And so as a result, he never deviated from God's heart and God's standard when he dealt with King Saul. And so all of those reasons, he says, contributed to God's intervention, his rescue. Now, Does God still intervene in our lives when we're not following David's example? Yes, because God's full of mercy and he's faithful even when we're faithless. But here's the difference. If you're not going to trust the Lord, you're not going to look to him, do things his way, you're going to give in to temptation, do it your own way, if that's the case, you can't expect God to come through for you. Look at James chapter 1, and we'll close with these few verses this morning, or this evening.
James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. Now, the context here is trouble. You're in trouble. Verse 5, James chapter 1. If any of you lack wisdom, if you don't know what to do when you're in trouble, well, then let him ask of God. That gives to all men liberally. In other words, he doesn't hold back. And he does not upbraid. When we come to him and say, God, what do I do? He's not like, oh, you can't figure this out on your own. He doesn't upbraid us. He doesn't, you know, reproach us when we come to him. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, not doubting, you know, not doubting God's way of doing things, not doubting God's character, his faithfulness. For he that wavers is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man, the man who's not trusting the Lord, Let not that man think he shall receive anything of the Lord. And then he concludes, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Which way would you rather live? Hoping God is merciful while you stubbornly do whatever you want with no promise he will do so? Or trusting him completely knowing that even if he doesn't come through, it's only because there's an important reason which path do you want to be on? I know which path I'd rather be on because I've traveled the other road too many times and it's awful. Saul took that path. If we want to describe Saul's experience, it was a double-minded man who was unstable in everything he did. All the paths he took was always up and down, up and down, up and down always afraid because he always thought that God was against him because he knew he wasn't where he was supposed to be. Even though God graciously still came through for him sometimes. Do you want that path or do you want David's experience? I want David's experience. (laughs) So let's love God supremely. Let's stay on the straight and narrow. Let's stay humble because our unchanging God can be trusted. Amen? You know, he can be counted on. And so whether you're singing about it like David is here or whether you're living it out either way, that's what having a heart after God is. That's the whole theme of 2 Samuel is a heart after God. It's why there's an appendix with this song in it because the exhortation is, hey, let's be like David when he was doing things right. Let's not be like Saul or David when he was not doing things right. Let's all stand. Lord, I need, it. I need to have more of a heart after you. I know that m- many of my brothers and sisters may be saying the same thing to you tonight. Lord, we want to be people after your heart. And that means, Lord, we look to you, we trust in you, we invite you into the decision-making process when we don't know what to do and when we're in trouble. And so, Lord, I pray for my, my dear brothers and sisters tonight, if any of them are in trouble right now, maybe they've got a, a big decision in front of them or they just, you know, they're in, they've kind of cornered, they don't, they don't see a way out and they've, they, they've got to make a decision or they're feeling that pressure, Lord, I pray that you would help them just to say, Lord, I call upon you. I invite you into my presence. I want to invite you into this decision-making process. I don't want to give into the temptation to do things my way. I want to follow you. I want to stay on the straight and narrow. I don't want to return evil for evil. Lord, for everyone who might be thinking that tonight or might face that in the near future, will you, will you strengthen them? Will you remind them that you're unchanging, Lord? That even though our songs you know, are different over time, you know, over the centuries because of the new things you're doing in our life, Lord, you never change. We want to have hearts after you, and so we yield our heart to you to worship you and to trust you and to look to you for our answers. In Jesus' name, amen.